1: I'm Jeff Young.
2: And I'm Steve Kerwood. California burning. The damage from L.A.'s wildfires goes beyond the fire lines to the lungs of millions exposed to the smoke. The percentage of the population that's really at risk is probably much greater than
3: we talk about in the mass media. In fact, if you want to be really realistic about it, you probably should include everybody who breathes.
1: Also, a visit with Pennsylvania Senator Arlen Specter.
4: He switched parties.
1: Now he's rethinking his position on climate change.
2: And tracking the spread of West Nile virus up in the treetops.
4: What we're doing here tonight is we're counting robins as they come into a roost. Uh, We're in a suburban backyard in Hamden, Connecticut, and we're actually interested in the role of roosts in West Nile virus transmission.
1: Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth, so stick around.
5: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
1: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young.
2: And I'm Steve Kerwood. The biggest blaze in the modern history of Los Angeles County may well yet set another record. The most Americans exposed at one time to the pollution generated by wildfire. About 18 million people live in greater Los Angeles, a region that all too often tops the list of the nation's worst air quality. So what does the addition of all that smoke into already smoggy L.A. mean for public health? From Los Angeles, living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet reports that it's not just the people with respiratory problems who are at risk.
4: Westerners are used to fire and getting more used to it, but this most recent inferno right on L.A.'s north flank impressed even the battle worn
6: This really has been a terrible catastrophe, and it's so widespread. I mean, the volume, the mass, the size of this is just unbelievable.
4: Dr. Ed Aval is a 40-year resident of the city. He's also an air pollution expert who teaches at USC Medical School. Dr. Avoll says smoke is filled with tiny particles. It's an especially intense form of air pollution.
6: Well, the levels have been pretty extraordinary. Some of the inland valleys and across most of the city, you can see the smoke sort of pervade everywhere. The levels are in some places 10 or even 20 times above the standards. So they really are quite dramatically high.
4: Dr. Aval says many people mistakenly believe that it's those with asthma who suffer most from the fires.
6: Asthmatics tend to sort of be more aware of their body, more aware of their response to their surroundings, and tend to take personal protective behavior. And so where the asthmatic child, for example, might say, I just don't quite feel right. I'm going to not exercise as much today. Their healthy peer may just go out and run around and overexpose themselves. And in fact, we've done studies that have reported that, that it's that group of non-asthmatics that we see larger effects than the asthmatic children.
4: And that, of course, covers
6: a much larger group.
3: The percentage of the population that's really at risk is probably much greater than we talk about in the mass media.
4: Mark Morocco is a supervising emergency room doctor and an associate professor at UCLA Medical School. He also says people underestimate exactly who is affected by smoke.
3: In fact, if you want to be really realistic about it, you probably should include everybody who breathes, even those folks who are healthy and essentially have no respiratory or cardiopulmonary problems or would put themselves in a category like that are probably at some risk.
4: Your body uses mucus to trap particles, viruses, and bacteria. Tiny hair-like cilia line the airways and help move that mucus out of the body. But smoke slows the action of the cilia, leaving irritants and pathogens freer to move deep into the lungs and set up shop there.
3: So once you're exposed to smoke and you begin to have these problems, we know that you are at increased risk for any kind of infection. And so we could see a real uptick in in our flu season. We could see an increasing number of cases of bacterial pneumonias in especially elderly and immunocompromised folks, folks who have other health problems.
4: These acute effects, Dr. Morocco says, are well known. Both experts agree what's unknown are the long-term effects. Again, Dr. Ed Abel.
6: The big question we don't all know yet is whether repeated short insults like this lead to some sort of permanent deleterious event you know where the tipping point is
4: yeah two two weeks of fire every year for your first seven years of life cause asthma
6: right that's the question that we don't really know I mean clearly these these insults because when the levels are so high and the pollution levels are so high that you're getting dramatically increased exposure whether this leads to some sort of lifelong problem why your lungs are growing why your your systems are developing really I think is an issue that you know we ought to be concerned about and thinking about
4: and both doctors Avall and Morocco say climate models that predict more heat and dryness in the western U.S. give them pause, thinking about people's exposure to fire and smoke. Dr. Morocco.
3: If it turns out that the models that are postulated are true and we go into having sort of a 12-month fire season, we're going to spend our time essentially in an experiment where we're exposed to particulate matter continuously, where you'll essentially be immersed in a soup for a long time. And then there's no telling what that will, will do in terms of long-term health care and public health. But in terms of short-term public health, I think we're bound to see many people with more acute and more life-threatening pulmonary illnesses all around the calendar.
4: Dr. Morocco says physicians will treat these patients as best they can, one by one. But fire and smoke raise larger questions, such as how many of us live near the tender, dry woods, and even which cars we drive, far beyond the firelands. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet in Los Angeles. California's
1: wildfires are one more reminder of the looming impacts of climate change. And they come just as Congress is about to return to work on climate change legislation. In June, the House passed a cap-and-trade bill. Now all eyes are on the Senate, especially a group of about 20 senators, mostly Democrats, who could be the decisive votes. Among them is Pennsylvania Senator Arlen Specter, who recently switched parties to run for re-election as a Democrat. It's been a long, hot summer for Senator Specter.
3: One
7: day God's going to stand before you. And he's gonna judge you
0: and the rest of your damn cronies up on the hill.
1: Spectre's healthcare town halls got so rowdy, headline writers dubbed them town brawls. Now, wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. Spectre could soon feel some heat on global warming, too. He'll play a key role as a new member of the committee drafting the Senate's version of a bill to limit the amount of greenhouse gases that can be emitted while setting up a system to trade emissions permits, known as cap and trade.
8: I believe we need legislation on uh, global warming, on climate change, and uh, I joined the Environment and Public Works Committee specifically so I'd have a seat at the table because I consider it such an important issue. I
1: caught up with Senator Spector in the midst of his hectic home state tour. Conservative hecklers on one day, a convention of liberal bloggers the next. In front of a mostly Democratic crowd in Pittsburgh, Spector talked up his record on climate change.
8: I think the global warming issue is long past due. In the last Congress, uh, I supported the Bingham and bill, which was cap and trade. And I support what uh, President Obama wants to do. But
1: Specter left out a few details. He has not voted for any major climate bill in the Senate. The bill he sponsored with Democratic Senator Jeff Bingaman did not cut emissions as much as scientists say is needed. Nor did Specter mention the letter he signed last month, along with nine other Democrats, setting conditions for support of a climate bill. That letter calls for so-called carbon tariffs, or penalties on imports from countries like China, if they do not join an international climate agreement. The president opposes that, calling it protectionism. I asked Senator Spector how he reconciles that record with support for the Obama agenda on climate change.
8: Well, it is the job of a senator to offer suggestions to what the the president proposes and then to try to work it out. You get legislation through by accommodation, by trying to work through it. Uh, Our goals, I think, are identical. And how we get there is a subject for discussion.
1: Is that uh, element uh, of a a trade, some sort of carbon tariff or a barrier on, uh, say, Chinese steel, for example, is that a potential deal breaker for you in a vote for a climate change bill?
8: Well, I I wouldn't at this point begin to talk about any deal breakers. Uh, I would say that we have to treat U.S. industry fairly when it comes to imports. And I have said that. I've argued 13 cases in the International Trade Commission. But uh, let's try to work it out. Has your switch to the
1: Democratic Party changed your position on climate and energy issues at all?
8: No, I had the same position as a Republican. I co-sponsored the Bingham Inspector Bill, which was a cap and trade.
1: Right, but one that a lot of the environmental community views as too weak in terms of its emissions reductions.
8: Well, the objective of legislation is to get it passed. And I'm not in concrete on the standards. We need to do something which is technologically sustainable, Warner Lieberman, which had tougher standards, uh, proposed items which uh, we didn't have the technology for. And also, to get a bill passed, you've got to have broad support. But this is incremental. This is step-by-step. Step. And I'm prepared to, uh, uh, to negotiate and to discuss uh, uh, tougher standards, uh, bearing in mind the total picture of uh, jobs maintaining and getting sufficient support to get it passed. We don't want to have a super bill that you can't get passed.
1: If it sounds like Senator Spector's trying to straddle a fence on those questions, well, consider the political terrain he's trying to cover in Pennsylvania. It's a major coal mining state, and despite declines in steel and heavy industry, there are still 800,000 workers in a manufacturing sector that's sensitive to both foreign competition and energy prices. But political scientist Terry Madonna at Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, says the state's economy is starting to green a bit.
7: The environmental community in Pennsylvania has shifted its focus to job creation and arguing that the energy changes or the environmental changes that they have proposed will produce new jobs, good-paying jobs. And I think it's
1: an argument that has gained some momentum so Senator Spector's got a real balancing act here, supporting those traditional energy-intensive industries and uh, this emerging uh, uh, green economy. And now he's trying to do that as a Democrat.
9: You know, Senator Specter, if nothing else, has been, you know, like Houdini through his political
7: career, a master escape artist. I think the senator will be hard-pressed not to vote for a final version of the climate bill. But he is in the middle politically, and what he does on the climate bill, in particular in the Senate, is going to be very much observed and I think will be one of the two or three very important factors in his primary battle with the left-leaning Congressman Joe Sestak.
1: Polls show Spectre well ahead of Joe Sestak, a two term congressman with a strong military background. But Madonna sees evidence that the Sestak challenge is pushing Spectre to the left on issues like climate change. At a campaign stop, Representative Sestak told me he's an enthusiastic supporter of the global warming bill that emerged from the House, written by Representatives Henry Waxman and Ed Markey. I
3: had it uh, as one of my campaign issues, so it was one of my five pillars that I ran on. And that's why I immediately co-sponsored last, when I first went to Congress, the Waxman Bill for climate
6: change.
1: In contrast, Spector says he has not studied the Waxman-Markey Bill enough to know if he supports it. A spokesperson says comments coming into the senator's office show Pennsylvanians have a high level of interest in the climate bill, and they're about evenly split for and against. And Spector's still hearing plenty from Pennsylvanians upset that he switched parties. Nevertheless, Specter says his political life is easier as a
8: Democrat. I like it. And now I don't have to look over my right shoulder anymore. It's comfortable again. But not too comfortable. Now, as he mulls over his vote
1: on climate change, Senator Spector might be looking over his left shoulder instead.
2: Coming up, the dose makes the poison, except sometimes it doesn't. Chemicals and hormones just ahead. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood.
1: And I'm Jeff Young. When toxicologists test a chemical's safety, they typically use high doses to find health problems. But that approach has missed the potential dangers of some substances that can be hazardous in tiny amounts. They're known as endocrine disruptors because they mimic or block hormones. Some, like bisphenol A and phthalates, are common ingredients in plastics and other consumer items. Recently, the government's National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences published a paper challenging regulators to change chemical safety tests to reflect this emerging scientific
10: understanding
1: about low doses. Dr. J. Peterson Myers is the lead author. Our regulatory safety net,
11: the FDA or the EPA, they all depend upon a core assumption that when they test at high doses, those tests will reveal what's happening at low doses. The problem is that when you're dealing with contaminants that behave like hormones, it doesn't work that way. They do one thing at high doses and potentially something completely different at low doses. So if you are dependent upon high-dose testing, which is the way our system works, you will never see the low-dose effects. And what that means is all of the high-dose testing that we've done for decades have been blind to this type of effect.
1: Why is it that uh, these chemicals can start to show problems at low doses instead of at high doses?
11: What hormones and these contaminants do is at very low doses, they turn on and off genes. Genes are being turned on and off trillions of times a second throughout your lifetime. And the orchestration of that is absolutely vital to life. If the genes get turned on or off at the wrong time, that's going to lead to a problem you're going to lack a protein that might be important, for example, in suppressing a tumor or in controlling the growth of your heart. And the body's control system for these genes is designed to function at really, really low levels. How low are we talking about? We're talking parts per trillion to parts per billion to low parts per million.
1: And this is not even in the area where the safety system is designed to look.
11: The safety system is not designed to look there. It starts at parts per thousand and rarely gets to low parts per million and never gets to parts per billion.
1: So we've all heard the phrase, the dose is the poison. And that really is the assumption that a lot of toxicology is working on.
11: It's an assumption that's been around since the 16th century. It was based upon work by a guy named Paracelsus in Switzerland and the the way the tests work today is we think that by testing at high doses we're going to see everything so that once we get to a dose that's intermediate and we don't see anything we're golden but this science is telling us that at really low doses as contaminants mimic hormones they can have effects that are totally unpredictable by what happens at high doses and now we're watching as toxicology is overturned by new science from endocrinology endocrinology is the study of hormones and It's only because endocrinologists brought their skills and knowledge into this field and began asking these new questions that we began seeing results like this beginning about a dozen years ago.
1: So it's emerging science, but it's not brand spanking new. Why haven't we been looking for this sort of response when we're trying to determine whether or not a substance is is safe?
11: I should emphasize that it's not even close to brand spanking new. It's Solid in endocrinology. This is something that physicians have to structure their drug deliveries around. They know that at low doses you can cause effects that don't happen at high doses. In fact, you can cause the opposite effect. And the best example of that is a compound called tamoxifen that's used by physicians to cure breast cancer. It works at high doses to suppress the growth of the breast cancer tumor. That's exactly what you want it to do. But at a level about a million fold beneath that toxic dose, It turns on genes that are responsive to estrogens and causes the breast tumor to grow. And if you only do the classic experiments of high doses until you don't find an effect, you miss this.
1: And are we beginning to see that that's happening? That uh, the the findings from endocrinology are indeed being uh, put to work in uh, our our safety system?
11: Well, not yet. There's a battle underway today over bisphenol A. The low-dose experiments say it's risky. And we shouldn't be using it with food products. But to date, the agency reviews of bisphenol A have basically depended upon traditional high-dose experiments by contract laboratories and have not been willing to pay attention to the low-dose studies published by academic scientists doing this new research. Another endocrine-disrupting compound that has been shown to have these different effects at low doses than high doses are some of the phthalates, a common plasticizer added to plastic to make it pliable and soft. There's some fascinating work showing that at really low doses, phthalates alter our responsiveness to allergens. They make us hyperallergic. So the standard tests that are used to assess toxicity don't even begin to tell you about this effect of phthalates. Interestingly, we know that people today are experiencing increasing frequency of allergic diseases like asthma and like allergies. And now we're seeing that one possible mechanism of it could be our exposures to phthalates.
1: So maybe that gives us some insight into why the bisphenol A issue is so hard fought, that um, it's about more than just BPA, isn't it?
11: It is about more than just BPA. BPA itself is a big deal. You do the calculation, and it's worth about $800,000 an hour. You can buy a lot of lawyers to defend your product with $800,000 an hour in revenue. But BPA is the poster child of this low-dose debate. And if BPA is regulated based on low-dose effects... It explicitly acknowledges that the regulatory system has been blind to these types of effects, and BPA is not the only one that's going to have to be reexamined.
1: Now, EPA has been taking some steps uh, in this direction. Give me an assessment of what the Environmental Protection Agency has been doing in terms of these uh, endocrine-disrupting chemicals.
11: Uh, Very little. Uh, There is a program that's been underway, uh, mandated by the Food Quality Protection Act of 1996, that uh, instructed the EPA to develop testing and screening criteria for endocrine disrupting compounds. And just this past year, it identified candidates to measure. Congress actually expected them to be measuring these things within a few years. And here we are 13 years after the passage of that act. And EPA has just identified what candidates they should look at. And it's a small, incomplete list.
1: That's Dr. Pete Myers, CEO and chief scientist of the nonprofit Environmental Health Sciences. You can read that paper on endocrine-disrupting chemicals at our website, LOE.org.
2: By the way, another chemical that's risky at low doses is the herbicide atrazine, now banned in the European Union, but widely used here in the U.S. The Natural Resources Defense Council recently found troubling amounts of atrazine in three-quarters of the streams in farming regions. To date, the EPA has failed to act on atrazine as well as the low-dose screening program, and the agency declined to talk with us for this week's show. So we called Dr. Tracy Woodruff, who worked as an EPA scientist for 13 years. She now directs the program on reproductive health and the environment at the University of California at San Francisco.
0: I think EPA needs to do more to look at the question of endocrine disrupting chemicals. Clearly, the uh, efforts that they've made to date on implementing the endocrine disruptor screening program could move a little faster. There has not been a whole lot of visible movement in that program since it was passed in 1996. So that was during the Clinton administration. Now, there's a couple things that go on with that program. One is they have to decide what chemicals to test. Then they have to develop methods for testing those chemicals. But clearly that program has moved at a very slow pace, particularly when we look at the amount of scientific information that is continuing to emerge about a lot of these endocrine-disrupting chemicals and why we might be concerned about their low-level exposures.
2: Why do you think it's been so slow to move?
0: Well, I think think there's uh, many different things that come into play on why things can be slow, particularly at a regulatory agency. One issue is going to be the science and how do we vet through the science. Certainly another important issue is who are the people who are concerned about this and what are the issues that they care about and how much influence do they have on how the process moves. And Clearly the testing of endocrine-disrupting chemicals is a focal point for groups, both environmental groups but also the regulated community who's going to be concerned about how their chemicals are labeled.
2: Some people have remarked that uh, industry has really been trying to block or, or, or halt this process. How, how fair a criticism is that?
0: The industry clearly cares about what's going to happen with this program. The industry clearly has been talking to EPA about what they want to see, and EPA is more or less responsive to that depending on their own political considerations. So one of the things that's difficult about some of these programs that are set up something like this but don't have enforceable deadlines is that things can drag out for a long time because EPA can spend a lot of time talking to lots of people and not necessarily moving forward. And if it's not a high priority for the agency to move it forward, then it will get stuck.
2: So I know you're in academia these days, uh-huh. but let's say the phone rings and it's President Obama. And he, he calls you up and he says, well, how should the EPA now deal with endocrine disruptors? What would you tell him? <laughs>
0: uh, President Obama called me on the phone. That would be, uh, be very exciting. Um, My first priority would be to change the requirements so that we uh, had to require information about chemicals that were going to remain on the market so we knew whether they were going to be a problem or not for public health.
2: So test everything.
0: Well, I think everything should have some type of uh, basic information set to know whether they're a potential health problem.
2: And how important would it be to move something like atrazine to the head of the queue?
0: Well, I think atrazine actually has a lot of data looking at the exposures to atrazine and what the increased risks might be. So I'm not sure they need to put that through the endocrine disruptor screening program. I think the EPA could take the data and science they have at hand and move right to the decision-making process.
2: As I understand it, if if one has a new chemical that's going to come on the Uh market, it goes through a testing process at EPA. But if it's been around, the the, uh, screening is not required uh, at all. I mean, you can put something in a cosmetic that, if it's an existing chemical, without testing to see what health effects it might have. Do I have that right? And if I do, do you think things should be changed?
0: Yes, you have that right. Chemicals that have been on the market since the passage of the Toxic Substances. Control Act do not require any testing unless EPA provides a large amount of data to prove that we should test something, which of course is very difficult to do. Um, New chemicals that come onto the market do have to have a little bit of testing, but it's not the complete set of testing that we would want to know for every chemical. And this seems uh, a little bit odd that we have chemicals that are on the market, which we have no idea whether they, at the levels that people are exposed, are safe or not.
2: What substances that we're exposed to regularly in low levels are you most concerned about?
0: It's a little bit difficult to sort through because, as you probably know, if you think about high-production chemicals alone, which is produced or imported in more than a million pounds, there's almost 3,000. Uh, Some of the chemicals I'm concerned about are things that I think we haven't been paying very much attention to. I mean, a lot of people are familiar with bisphenol A and phthalates. I'm also very concerned about ones that are what we would consider emerging or that we haven't been looking at very much. For example? Uh, Triclosan, thought to disrupt uh, thyroid hormone. Uh, The cyclohexanes, which are a family of chemicals that are ubiquitous in consumer products and have uh, been talked about in California as a substitute in dry cleaning for perchloroethylene. Uh, there's some suspicion that it can disrupt uh, uterine function. And then uh, the octyl phenols, which are found ubiquitously in the water supply and also thought to be an endocrine-disrupting chemical.
1: Well,
2: wait a second. Triclosan is in the deodorant soap that gets yep. used in my household. Yep. The phenols are in detergents, so I should quit washing, I guess. <laughs>
0: No, you should not quit washing, but you can use products to wash your hands and wash your clothes that do not have necessarily all these chemicals. It's very interesting about the soap and the, and the triclosan, and it's in all these sort of antibacterial soaps, but there's not a lot of evidence that we need to have quite the focus on these antibacterial soaps that, uh, that we're led to believe. Um, I think if you can just wash your hands with some very plain soap, that works uh, just as well.
2: Tracy Woodruff is a former EPA scientist, and she's an associate professor at the University of California at San Francisco. Thank you so much, Dr. Woodruff.
0: Thank you.
2: Forty-five years ago, the U.S. Surgeon General reported that smoking is bad for your health. The message has sunk in. Over 40% of Americans smoked then, but now only about 20% do. But new research says just how addictive smoking is for you depends upon the color of your skin. Living on Earth's Ike Shreeskandaraja reports.
9: What would you say if I told you that the darker your skin is, the worse smoking is for you, and the harder it is for you to quit?
8: Okay, so the more pigment I have in my skin, the worse smoking is for me. I'd say...
5: Is that scientific? (laughs) You're going to have to give me that information and back it up, because to me that doesn't make sense.
9: No, the link's not obvious, but Dr. Gary King from Pennsylvania State University is happy to explain his research. Hi, glad to be here. He studies nicotine, which is the highly addictive stimulant that makes people crave cigarettes, and melanin, a compound that your body makes that determines how dark you are and he found a connection. In simple
12: terms, what we have uh, discovered is that there is a binding between nicotine
9: and melanin. That means the melanin is strongly attracted to nicotine. The way it works is, when you light up a cigarette and take a drag, the tobacco and all the chemicals created when it burns go in your mouth, into your lungs, and the rest of your organs, including your biggest organ, skin. Skin does react, like every
12: organ, other organ of the body, to uh, nicotine and the other 4,000 chemicals
9: that are consumed when one actually smokes. Inhaling thousands of chemicals is not a good idea, but it is especially bad for people with dark, melanin-rich skin. That's because melanin grabs and hangs on to the nicotine. And that binding process in and of itself may lead to greater dependence. Greater dependence means it's much harder for darker-skinned people to kick the habit. In fact, white smokers on average are 15% better at quitting than blacks, even though whites typically smoke about five more cigarettes a day.
12: Nicotine doesn't remain in the body for an extended period of time, which is one reason why smokers continue to have to replenish their supply. The suggestion is, is that it does remain in the body much longer for African Americans than white Americans. African Americans typically smoke fewer cigarettes than uh, Caucasian Americans and some other groups. But yet and still, the
9: dependence rate is much higher. But that doesn't mean white people are off the nicotine hook their lighter skin still makes the type of melanin we all accumulate from being in the sun.
12: Absolutely. If, in fact, we're talking about sun-exposed uh, melanin or sun-exposed uh, parts of the body, then uh, this very well could affect populations that are more likely to uh, perhaps work in the outdoor environments where there's sun and, uh, interestingly enough, may very well have implications for persons who live
9: closer to the equator. Which is why Dr. King's next step is to survey dark and light-skinned people all over the world. His findings are based on a pretty small sample, 150 subjects, all of whom are African-American. And the study targeted African-Americans for several reasons. For one, black people have the widest range of melanin concentration. Also, by focusing on African-American communities, Dr. King says he was better able to control for the non-biological factors that influence smoking habits.
12: Yes, you know, clearly, we could not simply look at you know two different uh, two variables, and that is uh, nicotine exposure and, and melanin. But uh, we had an array of other uh, sociological factors such as uh, one's education, the amount of stress that a person uh, was experiencing. We also looked at that we had a scale to measure racial discrimination. However, after controlling for all of these other factors, including age and gender, we did not find that they reduce the significance of our association between uh, melanin and nicotine. So just to review, cigarettes are
9: bad for you, but turns out the darker your skin, the harder it is to kick the habit. So if you absolutely have to smoke, at least do so in the shade.
12: (laughs) Well, um, some might want to to come to that conclusion. What we've done is is something that we think is uh, pretty groundbreaking, and uh, we certainly would like to explore uh, much more fully. Uh, But at the moment, I could not comment, uh, uh, at least authoritatively, on on that particular
9: point. Dr. Gary King is a professor in the departments of biobehavioral health and sociology at Pennsylvania State University. For Living on Earth, I'm Ike Kandaraja.
1: Just ahead, water, water, nowhere. How some of the oldest tribes on Earth
5: might just be able to help us out. Stay with us on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment, and from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young.
2: And I'm Steve Kerwood. The Bushmen of the Kalahari in Africa have lived for tens of thousands of years, finding water and scratching out an existence in the harsh desert landscape.
7: It's very drab. It's very monotonous. It's the closest I can imagine to a moonscape.
2: That's James Workman, an international water specialist from California who traveled in the Kalahari. His new book is called Heart of Dryness, How the Last Bushman Can Help Us Endure the Coming Age of Permanent Drought. Mr. Workman says we should pay heed to the Bushmen because inevitable climate change will lead to growing global desertification, including dry areas like America's southwest. But James Workman says that the Bushmen nearly lost the skills they developed to survive in their hostile land when the Botswana government implemented a series of forced resettlements.
7: They moved them out to these reserves and, and rack ops, and it wasn't there was less water. It was the monopoly water. It was the government saying, here's a pipe, and you get all the water you want. On the surface, like, oh, who can complain about that? But it changed their life because there was then nothing for them to organize their existence around. Before, they'd been hunting and gathering and trading and exchanging and doing so on their own terms and timetable. And then you hook them up to a tap, and that was that was it. In some cases, that water wasn't as good a quality. When you concentrate people and animals around water, you you create all kinds of unintended negative effects of sewage in the water supply, of malaria, because you've got standing water.
2: And, of course, once you have people dependent on a pipe for water, things happen when you shut off that pipe, and that's indeed what the government did. What happened to the Bushmen who chose to stay despite the lack of water?
7: They fell back on the old ways, as they call them, So the elders became in many ways leaders of of saying, okay, here's how we're gonna cope. We know the secret places where water is hidden. We know when to capture it. We know how to use it. When I first approached them, I thought I was coming to rescue the Bushmen and it turned out quite the opposite, uh, especially after my vehicle broke down in the middle of the Kalahari where I realized I have nothing to offer these guys. They've been here, they know what to do. Uh, On the other hand, if I can ever get out of here, which eventually I, I, I did with some help, I'm going to see what they can do to help
2: us. The Bushmen can survive in surprisingly arid conditions. What lifestyle choices make that possible, and what might we learn from them as a society?
7: You can't increase supply. So what you have to do is somehow find ways to reduce demand, and they're masters at that they sequester water, they scoop it off as soon as it, there's a rainfall into a pan or into a tree, and then they, they store it in a, a jug, a canister, a, a, an oil drum, uh, ostrich shells, to prevent evaporation. Whereas we do the exact opposite. You know, We store these water in, in giant dams which evaporate rapidly, and they also drink and eat local. Uh, they don't lose things through leaks and pollution and, and spilling over long distance, whereas we ship water from the Colorado River or, or from Two states away, and then they reuse water uh, as often as possible. They saw me sort of like wanting to throw out some dishwater, and they're just like, "What
2: are you thinking?" In your view, uh, what's the craziest thing that people here in the affluent West do with water?
7: Hmm. Uh, we grow rice in the desert. We store you know, water in these five-foot deep uh, reservoirs. And the hardest thing for us, on a personal level, to recognize is, is the idiocy of flush toilets. And that uses uh, not just a lot of water that could otherwise be used and uh, saved for the environment. It pollutes it, it spreads disease, uh, and it requires a huge amount of energy. Here in California, a fifth of the energy in the state goes towards treating and lifting and moving and warming water.
2: Now, somebody listening to us would say, okay, fine. You want us to live like... Uh, the Bushmen of the Kalahari. How do you deal with this in a modern urban society?
7: Well, what we can do is adopt their approach to water and give it the kind of value uh, that they do. There are incentives and there's technology already available. Germany and Norway, it's almost become a fad to have what they call eco-sand, these um, composting toilets, uh, which then turn our human waste into an asset. There are ways to, you know, minimize the impact that we leave, and that's the lesson from the Bushmen.
2: It would be helpful if you could describe the Bushmen's practices of trading water and ownership. The main thing is that
7: there's no monopoly on water. I I sort of came there thinking, oh, you know, the Bushmen are primitive Marxists, because that was sort of a romantic idea I had, and it's quite the opposite. They recognize the strength of each other, of who can gather, who can hunt, who has rights to this sip well, to that pan, to this you know, foraging ground. They know and keep track of mentally who owes whom what. And that matters in, in times of scarcity because it relieves the pressure of saying, okay, you're not pulling your weight or you're you're wasting something. So it's self regulating in a way that, that we couldn't begin to recognize without a no police force, no politicians saying, okay, you get this much water, I'm deciding, you know, where this water goes, and so forth. And so they own shares, and by doing so, they take good care of it. They make it last as long as possible. We don't. Um, the water in our toilet, in our sink, in our shower, in our gardens, we rent that. We borrow it. Uh, it's subsidized in the same way it's subsidized to, to farmers. And if you have something that you're renting, you just don't take as good care of it, and you have no incentive to to make it last, and you have no incentive to
2: trade it with your neighbors. So how feasible is it to apply the bushman survival skills to developed countries?
7: Well we have technology that they don't and our, our greatest technology in the last few years developed is is the web of course. What you have with eBay, what you have with Amazon is this ability to trade with strangers and build trust and that's the kind of thing I think we can adopt and I'm, which I'm trying to pioneer where you and somebody across the the city from you, you're all in the same water supply. You use, you know, 50 gallons. He uses 500 gallons. uh, And if everybody gets the same amount of water, you can sell what you don't use, or you can save it to that stranger. It's like an eBay for the environment.
2: One aspect of the case of the Bushman that came up was the question of whether water is a basic human, right? Yeah. Now, It seems to me that it's impossible to live without water. So what is the argument to say that water is not a human right?
7: I'm siding with you exactly on that. But the counterpoint is like, well, wait, if water is a human right, then if some government fails to provide it through incompetence, uh, do they get hauled up in front of The Hague? Are they human rights violators, um, whether it's intentional or unintentional? And if it's a human right, does that mean I get unlimited water wherever I live so I can move to the Mojave Desert and say, I've got a human right to water. You must bring that water to me. My answer is that it is a human right, uh, but it need not be called that. You can quantify a certain amount for every single person, rich or poor, and if they use that amount, then it's free. If they use less than that amount, which they own, then they can sell or save credits that they've earned. Water is uh, an economic good, and it's a human right. And um, it's both together, and we can use it as such.
2: James Workman's new book is called Heart of Dryness, how the last Bushman can help us endure the coming age of permanent drought. Thank you so much, Jamie. Steve, thanks very much.
1: Ten years after it arrived in North America, West Nile virus is in decline the Centers for Disease Control says the number of reported cases in the U.S. is down sharply. But people aren't the real target for West Nile. Producer Lori Sanders visited with a team of scientists learning more about the virus by studying its
10: primary hosts, birds. When West Nile virus appeared in New York City in 1999, it showed up first in birds, particularly crows. For the first few years, infected crows were dying by the thousands. At the time, The assumption was that crows were playing a major role in the virus's cycling and transmission. But in 2005, a Connecticut-based study revealed that crows were not the main carrier. Instead, it was the familiar and beloved American robin.
4: What we're doing here tonight is we're counting robins as they come into a roost. Uh, we're in a suburban backyard in Hamden, Connecticut. The robins actually like to roost in these trees. Corey
10: Folsom O'Keefe is a research a assistant eight, at, eight, at eight, Yale University's School and of Public Health. They
4: started roosting maybe about two weeks ago, and they'll continue to roost probably into September. And we're actually interested in the role of roosts in West Nile virus transmission.
10: These robins will spend the night together here, and come daybreak, they'll fly away. In the case of many of the adult males, that means back to their nest site to help their mate with the business of raising a second brood. When the day's over, they'll come back again to this roost. Folsom O'Keefe says at its peak, this site will have about 2,000 robins, but other roosts have more. During the next few months, she and her team will be visiting six roosts in the New Haven area, counting robins and trapping mosquitoes. In the process, they're hoping to answer several questions. For instance, in the roost in such close quarters, can robins actually infect each other with West Nile virus? Is the virus infection rate higher in mosquitoes trapped near roosts? Does the mosquito infection rate vary between roosts? And what is it about robins that mosquitoes find so appealing? Are they actually secreting some special odor? It's here at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station in New Haven that researchers are working with Yale to try to help answer these questions. The station is responsible for the state's mosquito surveillance program, and each summer, at dozens of sites around the state, they trap about 200,000 mosquitoes. All those mosquitoes are sorted to species and tested for viruses. Mike Thomas is one of the mosquito experts in the lab. He says back in 2005, It was this lab that gathered the evidence, showing how crows actually played a small role in the spread of West Nile virus, and robins, a much bigger one. And the evidence was right in the bellies of the mosquitoes.
1: Here's a blood meal. This is really good to see. It's, I would say, partially digested. It's mostly black with just a little bit of red. So this one here, we're going to pull out and put in a separate tube. For the blood meals, we only put one mosquito per tube so that when doing the molecular analysis, it will be specific just for that one mosquito.
10: Capping the tube, Thomas puts the vial with the mosquito on ice. Thousands of vials are in this freezer.
9: This is a scientific refrigerator that has the capability to go below minus 80 Celsius. So
10: Kudaz Molai, a molecular biologist, is responsible for analyzing the blood. And prevents
9: DNA degradation. We have in this freezer several thousand mosquitoes, blood-engorged mosquitoes, collected from many regions in the United States.
10: To do the analysis, Malai clips off the blood-filled belly from the rest of the mosquito's body. The abdomen is then placed in another vial, and using a series of techniques that were developed here, Malai is able to isolate the DNA in the blood, replicate it, and then, by comparing the DNA sequence with an NIH database, he can figure out exactly what kind of animal the mosquito fed on. And it turns out, mosquitoes are choosy. Some species feed only on reptiles and amphibians, others just on mammals, and some just on birds. Malai says when it comes to a mosquito-transmitted virus like West Nile, the mosquito species that are really important are the opportunistic feeders that readily switch between birds and mammals. And that includes us. In Connecticut, there are really two important species like that. And what Malai found when he analyzed their blood meals was that they had fed on many kinds of birds, but 38% of them had fed on robins. And 38% is a
9: great percentage because when we analyzed the mosquito blood meal, we dealt with over 30 bird species that mosquitoes fed upon.
10: Malai says based on that number, it's probably also true that migrating robins played a key role in the rapid spread of West Nile virus across North America and into Mexico and Central America. In just 10 years, West Nile has become the most commonly contracted mosquito-transmitted virus in the Western Hemisphere. However, there is some good news. During the last two years, the number of human cases in the U.S. has decreased sharply. As of late August, The Centers for Disease Control had reported only 123 confirmed human cases and four fatalities in 22 states, less than a third as many as last year. Just why the decline has occurred is uncertain, but scientists speculate that through exposure, birds and humans may be developing a natural immunity. For Living on Earth, I'm Laurie Sanders.
2: Community-supported agriculture has become hugely popular in many urban areas. Farmers sell shares, and the dividend is a weekly supply of fresh veg. The charm of CSAs, as they're called, is not just the fresh local food. Many also give their shareholders the chance to visit the farm and see where their zucchini and onions and collards grow. One CSA in Massachusetts offers a rare treat, the chance to meet your meat. That's right, Chestnut Farms in Hardwick, the state's first meat CSA, holds regular open barn events. Living on Earth's Lisa Song went along and brings us this sound portrait.
0: I'm Kim, and that's my husband Rich, and we own and operate Chestnut Farms, and we raise all our animals in a humane and sustainable way. We're about much more than just putting a hamburger on your table by connecting with people and helping them come out and see and pat a
5: pig, hold a chicken, see what's involved. I think there's a better appreciation.
0: We don't name the ones that we eat. When we were first starting and we would do cows for ourselves um, and our three children were younger, we would call the cows Din Din 1, Din Din 2, Din Din 3 so that it was really clear that it was going to be Din Din. And I find that the kids are very sanguine about it, I and mean, the kids are fine if they know you're raising an animal to eat. It's the moms, particularly, that have a little stress. So You
5: can see her.
1: she's a little full right now. You can see her what a nice bum she's got, and that's the hams, and that's what you look for, as well as a long back,
5: which is more pork chops.
1: more pork chops. You're a good girl.
5: And tell me your name? Sam. And what do you do on the farm? Um, we raise the chickens. We have two kinds of eggs. We have Arikana eggs, which are blue, and Rhode Island reds and comets eggs are red. Okay. And the difference between them are Arikana eggs are supposed to be more healthy and stronger. That's the blue eggs. And the other kind is just the regular eggs. My name is Norlisa Wise, and I'm the daughter of
0: the owners and founders of Chestnut Farms. All of our animals are naturally raised, hormone-free, grass-fed. I mean, we're standing looking next to the fields right now, and you can see
7: that all those calves that are out with their mothers right now, if they were on a conventional farm, would have been pulled away only days after having been born. And here we let them nurse until they wean naturally around, you know, six, eight months. Then a lot of people sort of don't want to look at the the animal that they are going to eat as a steak or a hamburger later, but for us, and I think for a lot of our members, it's really important to know that the meat that you're eating and consuming is coming from a humane place, that it lives a good, long life, that it's treated with respect, and that the land is being treated with
6: respect.
2: Living on Earth's Lisa Song created that audio postcard of the inhabitants of Chestnut Farm in Hardwick, Massachusetts. For pictures, go to our website, LOE.org. Beep, beep, beep,
12: beep, beep, beep. Said the chicken to the barnyard pin, quack, quack. Said the duck, won't you let me in? Cluck cluck cluck. Said the little red hen, let's boogie in the barnyard.
2: Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Shreeskandaraja, and Mitra Taj with help from Sarah Hawkins, Marilyn Gavoni, and Sammy Souza.
1: And today we bid a sad farewell to our stellar interns, Annie Glosser and Lisa Song. We expect great things of you both, and we wish you both the best of luck. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our
5: themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Jeff Yanni.
2: And I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
5: Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation. The Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs around the world. Uncommon heroes dedicated to the common good. Learn more at Skoll.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PRI Public Radio International.